Hello, welcome back. My name is Dan Thoreau, as always, and I am joined today by a very special guest. This is someone who has made one of my favorite negotiation games. It is a game that is unfailingly uh, plays out in around two hours, basically regardless of how many people are actually sitting there playing it. The game, of course, is Sidereal Confluence, and the designer is none other than Tausetti Deichman. Welcome, Tausetti. Hi. Um, how are you yeah. today? Uh, pretty good. I don't know. I don't know if this is true where you are, but where I am, there's a global pandemic. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm in New York State, so... Uh, there, there we go. We, 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 uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been stuck in my house for about a month now. but Yeah, that gives us a sense of what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> are you surviving? Are you doing all right? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm pretty good at living out of my house. Uh, this is not amazingly unusual for me. I'm actually doing better than most of my friends. I've been spending time um, entertaining them so that they're okay, too. Are you using a lot of digital games to get by? Um, well, I, okay. So, I mean, I am playing uh, digital games, but um, I'm also like actively designing a few new board games. And I've been using, there's a couple different services. Uh, Tabletop Simulator is probably the most famous that let you play board games online. So I've been mm -hmm. using that and other tools to um, play play board games with friends and also to get some of my playtesting done. Because it's a little bit difficult to invite five people over to my house when no one's allowed in. We're, we're running into a similar thing here. Fortunately, the one upside is I have been able to interview like six people in two weeks. No, yeah, because um, everyone's got time. Yeah, everyone everyone is totally happy to sit down and talk to me for some reason. Normally they they won't do that. So anyway, so sidereal confluence for those of our listeners who have no idea what this this mashup of words could mean, could you give us the elevator pitch? What is a sidereal confluence? All right. I mean, uh, there's the insetting answer or the 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 game answer. I'm not sure you know what? I would love to hear both from you. Okay. So, um, uh, the, the insetting answer is it's, uh, what the words literally mean, which is of the stars and coming together. So it's, it's a, a think of it as like, uh, the, I, the classic one is the formation of the Federation of planets in, in Star Trek, um, or mm -hmm. like the origins of Babylon five or something like that, where you've got these species coming together to build something greater than themselves. Um, mm -hmm. As a board game, the answer is it is a highly asymmetric trading and negotiation game. Um, it is weird in that it all the information or almost all the information is open and deals are binding, so it's unusually friendly compared to most uh, negotiation games. That's one of the things that struck me about it immediately is when reading the rule book and it says deals are binding. That's not oh, something yeah. I'm accustomed to. Usually, there's that uh, that split where if a deal occurs immediately, like a trade of resources, I can't hand you a resource and then close my fist really qu quickly and, and snatch it away. But anything that comes a turn later um, or in the future is more precarious. Uh, yeah, that's um, okay. So there's a really good reason for that. Uh, if you make deals binding, players start being able to collude and you're sort of handing the players uh, more power than even the designer has. Uh, if the players want to, they can make a different game inside of my game, and there's nothing I can do to stop them, which is terrifying from a designer's perspective. But um, and, and honestly, like uh, th that element of the game was relatively a late addition, um, maybe a year and a half before it actually came out. 
uh, Jacob, da- Jacob Davenport was doing a lot of playtesting, and he said, hey, if you make this change, the game's going to be a lot better and you'll be able to get the diversity of trade and be able to remove a half dozen other rules along the way. Um, and uh, my initial response was, there's no way that will work. It will burn down. And he said, try it. And it turns out that just like human psychology makes it function. I wouldn't put this in front of AIs, but um, actual mm-hmm. people can make this work. So you had to remove rules to make that work? Did you have so, what a it lot was, of big binding rules? I mean, what was, what was I, going on under the hood? So uh, the game at that point had a combat system. It had vague senses of, of position. It was all left over because the game had started off as something closer to a 4X game. Um, and uh, I was, the thing is all those extra little things acted as hooks for deals. You could make negotiations about where you move your fleets or which worlds you colonize or uh, exactly how aggressive your gunboat diplomacy is going to be and whether you're going to threaten somebody else. And uh, lots of interesting hooks meant for lots of interesting deals, but also a lot of complexity and a lot of, a lot of lack of focus to the game. And uh, part of the problem I was having was the combat system uh, it was really unfun to have someone steal a colony from you, like absolutely mm-hmm. miserable. And honestly, it wasn't particularly fun taking someone else's colony. It was just making the game less enjoyable all around. Uh, and I was terrified if I removed it that uh, there wasn't going to be much game left. And Jacob Davenport said, well, if you make the deals binding, you can get all that complexity of trade back uh, without having to have the combat mm-hmm. system. And it turned out to actually work, much to my surprise, and then I just kept refining things around it. it. Made balancing the game an absolute nightmare, admittedly. I'm surprised to even hear you talk about a combat system because um, playing the finished thing, as you said, one of the th- one of the big surprises, and I would say this is a delightful surprise, is that it's peaceful. You know, it, it's oh, yeah. it's almost, it's optimistic in exactly the way you mentioned the Star Trek's Federation. It almost has that same optimism to it that these races that um, not only are they disparate, you know, they're very different races, but some of them are warlike. Some of them, you know, like not quite Klingon. Um, You've mentioned in some of your fluff that they don't revel in battle. Um, Gosh, no. (laughs) But, but, you know, but, but also, but certainly militaristic. Um, And some of them don't even have different ways of communicating. Um, to the point where the fatter and the people who are bringing them together for this uh, confluence have made uh, concessions to them. So how did combat even fit into this? <laughs> All right. Because uh, it seems so peaceful so, so, in a good yeah. way, in a great way. So, like, I mean, the themes do change subtly over time um, as as you're developing a board game. Uh, the, like, the seed ideas that I started with aren't what I end up with in any game I'm designing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, what it was originally um, was, I mean, it was still relatively peaceful, um, but the original version was uh, more a 4X game. Um, think about, say, Twilight Imperium, but following exactly none of its rules. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it still had the giant economies. It had 10 different resources. It had a. It was about inventing technologies and sharing them. Um, and that's how you won, mostly. Uh, but there was also like col- there was a board, and you could colonize at distance based on a basic. I called it a colony bid, but it wasn't a bid at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you would pay resources to do that, and then um, uh, you could build military ships and and uh, move them around the board, and you could threaten other people's colonies and and threaten to attack them. But it was expensive, and it ate a lot of your income, so it was more useful as a political threat 
um, to say, look, if you colonize in what I perceive as my territory, I will take your stuff. So don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. And much less as a, I'm going to aggressively attack you. But like back then, it was like, there was even alternative win conditions. I had a military victory. It never in, in 10 years was triggered, but there were rules for it. So, so I'm hearing a lot of big numbers. So, so you say that, for instance, um, binding negotiation was a year and a half before release. You just said, you just dropped the decade. Uh, <laughs> so how long was sidereal confluence in development? Um, so there, it was, a, I, my memory is a little fuzzy, but um, there was about a decade. Uh, so it, I started work on it shortly after I graduated from college. And there was mm -hmm. about a decade where it was this thing that existed for the entertainment of my friends. I had no real intentions of publishing it. I didn't think it was publishable. It was way too complicated and way too huge. Um, mm -hmm. Thing is, I personally like really giant, complicated eight-player games that last eight hours. And sure. Oh, me too. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, my experience is that most people would rather have something that actually fits into their schedule somehow. Uh, yeah. And yeah. As a college student or shortly after college, it was more reasonable to be able to do things like that. And so it became this experience that we would pull out about once a year um, and we'd have a six to nine player game of it um, and um, just go through it. And after every game, I would look at it and say, hmm, I think the balance was off here and I need to adjust this. And I would tweak the rules a little bit and refine it a little bit. And But no intentions of ever doing more than making it a slightly better game for the entertainment of my friends. Um, amongst other things, it was absolutely huge. There's no way you could print this thing. Um, sure. But yeah, so uh, 10 years later, uh, we got into an unusually good game of it. Um, my friend Doug Hoover was playing the NET, which are the folks uh, who in the modern day have the ability to give you uh, interest converters. You, you dump stuff in, and it makes more profit, right. but they uh, can't run them themselves. At the time, there was a hand limit. Basically, there was a limit to how many resources you could hold between turn boundaries. You could dump them into converters to, to hide them from that. Um, mm -hmm. But that constrained. That, that was intended as a method for constraining people, so they would. It was harder to just save up resources for uh, inventing. And uh, the NET let you avoid that because they had banks where you could store resources. And later, that wasn't valuable enough, so I introduced interest into those banks. Um, and. Uh, at the time, uh, the way they worked was that you you would pay the NET to put stuff into the bank, but you could remove it for free later so that that way you knew that it was safe um, and they couldn't prevent you from getting at your resources. But how valuable it was to put something into the bank was really hard to quantify. And the general consensus was that it was somewhere between what is now a small and a large cube, which is not a unit of currency that exists. There's no way to pay that. So my friend Doug showed up with a giant pile of plastic coins and floated a currency he called the the yet because you had he hadn't paid or you hadn't paid him yet, um, and uh, he just simply backed the currency, saying, "If you want to exchange yet for resources from me, I will do it at the following exchange rates." And he even maintained interest over the game. He had a, a whiteboard, um, and hmm. so yeah, he just literally floated a currency in a game in order to fix a a, a deal making problem. And I went. That's awesome. I want to build a game like that and show it to other people. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I can so, just keep blobbing or something. But. Oh, no. <laughs> so one of the things you're mentioning is converters. Now, mm -hmm. in the current game, you if we were being super reductive, and I hope you don't find this offensive, oh, don't. we could say it's a converter game. Um, pretty much every card is a converter in the sense that you put in 
X, Y, and Z, and then you get out alpha, beta, you know, phi. Yep. And there's and some small percentage else. increase in value, and you it's even written on the card. Yep, the math right. is just sitting out there in the open. So it sounds like converters have been part of a ga- part of the game for a very long time. Yeah. So okay, actually, this gets back into the the origins of where the game came from. Um, when we yeah, started, why don't, why don't you walk through for us the history of Siberian <laughs> Confluence, even the primordial history, if you'd like? Okay. So in the dawn ages, uh, I was at college. And at the time, we were playing a lot of advanced civilization. Um, for those who don't know, ASIV is a civilization-themed game um, that has lots of disaster management. But at its heart, it's really just a trade game. And the way it works, like many trade games before and after it, is it generates random resources and hands them to you. And it does so in such a way as to guarantee that you can't make sets with the stuff that you have. And then you trade with other people to try to make big sets. And the more valuable, the more... Uh, stuff of the same thing you have. Like if you're collecting grain, the more valuable it is exponentially, or actually quadratically. Um, So uh, one of the things at the time, especially, is I tended to dislike uh, randomness. Um, But at the same time, so I I didn't like the fact that you were getting random resources, which is actually where Mm -hmm. the converters came from, is that they became a static, repeatable economy. Um, sure. But at the same time, I really liked this idea for trading, and I wish that I had constructed ASIV. Um, it was brilliant, so I set out to do that. Um, and of course, I used aliens because A, I like science fiction, and B, I didn't want to do all the research that you have to do for, for a civilization-style game. <laughs> right. So, Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that, those are hard to make. <laughs> right. So uh, as, some, as someone who uh, I teach history, oh, and, yeah. you know, well done. Well done just avoiding it all. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I like history's fascinating. It's full of all these cool things that you wouldn't even believe could happen. You can get away with stuff in history that you couldn't get away with in fiction. So it's, it's a wonderful place to plunder for ideas for things. All right. So, uh, from there, uh, I, I put together the first version of this game. And one of the big challenges was that that randomness actually softens the balance of the game. Um, not knowing what you're going to produce makes it harder to predict things and you have to be a bit more flexible. And so uh, if you're, it's, you always have to play somewhat conservatively and it softens uh, the game's dynamics somewhat. Um, make, setting it up such that you have absolute control suddenly turns this game into a thing about exponential growth where you have total control over what's going on. And it means that if the balance isn't absolutely perfect any errors just ex- uh, get exacerbated over the game. So uh, even before the first copy, I had a spreadsheet that came up with good guesses as to what everything should be worth and uh, how to evaluate all the converters in it. Um, and then we played the first version uh, and it was full information open and it worked great for the first about 16 turns. And then we hit the end of the game and uh, we hit a brick wall because we could look at each other's scores and count them up and everyone uh, would they, there was about a half an hour where everybody took out a pad of paper and added up how much each other player was worth. And eventually oh, we got bored of that and just told each other, right, right, this is terrible. And then yeah. everyone, nobody would make a deal that would change their relative position compared to somebody else that they were making a deal with. So the, the trades all locked up and the game stalled out completely. And I looked at it and went, well, that was a great middle uh, <laughs> yeah. but that ending was awful. So uh, that's actually where um, hidden hidden victory points comes from. I mean, the game's right, I was going and, to ask, is that the Dawn yeah. of the Shield? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the the beginnings of the shield. Um, in fact, the, the original version of the shield was bizarrely different. So, um, the early versions of the game had no cards in it. Uh, bizarrely, g- g- given given the current version, which is approximately oh, yeah. nothing but cards. Right. So, um, the original version, you had this giant board. Uh, it. Uh, that it and it listed every converter not only that you started with, which was usually about almost a dozen converters. Again, ten different resources, the equivalent of four small, four medium, and two to what are now called ultra tech. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it listed not just everything you started with, but everything that you could possibly invent over the game. And the shield um, it had a summary of all of the rules and how you played as your species, because each shield was unique to each species. A full list of every technology in the game. Uh, because mm-hmm. a uh, there was no bidding track, so you literally could invent anything you wanted each turn, uh, and mm. b only half the technologies invented converters, the other half did all kinds of weird things. So that giant shield was there because there was a technology called uh, um, unbreakable code, and if you invented unbreakable code, uh, it introduced a new rule that players c- would put up their shield over their entire play area, and suddenly. Uh, not only your victory points, but all of your resources and your entire economy would vanish. And I thought this was a really cool, powerful ability. But after 10 years of play, it was concluded that if Unbreakable Code is invented, what you do is you put your shield up, and then you take your play play area out from behind it, and you stick it in front of yourself anyway, and show everybody what you've got. Because it turned out that sharing that information made it much easier to make deals. Um, Hiding things actually hurt you. Uh, which is why you don't see that anymore. Um, but well, yeah. that's one of the things I like about the game is the way that it incentivizes. There are both times you want to hide things and often times you want to advertise things. Oh yeah. Um, like a, a classic thing I do is uh, in the modern game is we put uh, a, I make a pool of resources in front of me. That is I'm actively trying to sell this stuff and right. uh, resources. I don't want to sell. I, I'm going to put them into a converter. I stack them up next to, or on the converter card Um uh, actually, the, the the details I do is is if I can run the converter, I put them directly on the icons, and if I can't, I need a few more resources. I put them near the icons to indicate that I'm looking for these, mm-hmm. um, and and that not only tells people I don't really want to sell this, although I have it, but it also tells them what the price tag is, um, because right. you can look at you can look at the converter and say, oh well, you're going to get four small cubes if you run that. If I hand you four small cubes now before the economy phase, it's worth it to you to trade me those resources. So that's the price. Um, well, I love how the game leads very naturally into that sort of behavior. Um, like you don't, you don't have a, you don't have a placard, for instance, that says, here's the stuff that I want to sell. Here's the stuff I'm kind of waffling over. Um, I feel like it's very natural to just anything that you want to sell, you push forward and anything else that you're thinking of mixing into your converters, you pull it back a little bit. And of course, when people are looking for something, they can crane their necks and go, Hey, I I will give you something for that ultra tech. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, could you run a different converter and I'll give you this, all this stuff. And that, and that's where you really get to the elasticity of, of all the goods in there. Um, But you don't need a placard to do that. I feel like what, one of the things you've done is you've leveraged, very naturally the way that we instinctively negotiate inside Dario Confluence. To some extent, this this is accidental. Um, I, I mean, I when I discovered that things worked, I, I kept amping them up and keeping them working. But a lot of this isn't planned. It was discovered along the way. So it sounds like you were creating a game 
that is perfect for a bunch of fellows who know each other. Yeah. And totally unmarketable in every other way because like yep. putting up a big shield is one of those it sounds super cool and i hope you have a picture i hope you documented this this stuff oh, as it happened i mean i uh i don't think i have a picture online anywhere but like that copy of the game is still upstairs it, it exists oh my goodness. i can awesome. i can play that well yeah oh yeah well i mean so part of it is actually some of those people since that game was built for my friends a lot of them actually like that original version better than the current one that's out there um, but oh like, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Um, also, uh, to keep in mind, one of the things about uh, publishing a game is that you don't get to ship yourself with it. Uh, whereas in a <laughs> so, sure. yeah, right. So learning it has you have to learn it from a rule book. It has to be something that a human being can actually learn. But a game that's permanently in development doesn't, because every time I sit down with my friends, I don't sit there and explain all the rules. I just say these are the three things that changed since the last time you played this, and right. that's easy. Um, which means you can have an incredibly ludicrously complicated monster of a thing, and it doesn't actually hurt anything. One, two, but, you can't ship your friends. Um, right, so right. One of the things with the with the kind of dome so, shield that I think about is, how do you stop someone from cheating? Um, I mean... You know, you trust your friends, but if I'm playing this at a convention, which this is a great convention game, by the way, because I love getting together a group of nine people, some of whom I don't know, and then shouting at them for two hours... <laughs> Um, All right. And I mean that totally sincerely. So, so how did you shift from thinking about this as this, you know, it's totally bespoke for your group, you know, your clan of nerds. How, <laughs> yes. And then how do you go from that and then making it for my clan of nerds who you've never met, you don't know me, and you have to kind of make it into a broad appeal now? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, broad-ish. Uh, keep in mind, this is a game that is designed for both people who enjoy doing the analytical part and enjoy talking to each other, which at the time I thought was a tiny fraction of people, but it seems like it's, if you enjoy one of those and you're willing to tolerate the other, it turns out to be a pretty good game. So <laughs> uh, it, it has more appeal than I expected. Um, but uh, the, so uh, there are two elements. First uh, was just simplifying the game all the way down and... Uh, the second one was just um, being honest with how to play. Uh, the game was balanced for long-term play. It was it, like even from day one, it was designed for people who had played it a thousand times. Well, not a, literally a thousand times, probably close to a hundred though. Um, and so I wanted to keep that. I wanted to build a game that maybe not was not amazing the first time you pulled it out of the box, but starting on play five or ideally earlier than that would be amazing and would stay amazing no matter how good you got at it. Um, mm -hmm. and which, which is rather different than a lot of people design games. More, I, th I think there's a lot more that's built for the absolute first play will be immensely enjoyable, um, because a lot of people don't play a game five times. Um, so it needs to be good the first time. Um, yeah. so a lot of what ended up happening was just huge amounts of play testing. Um, a lot of what helped me expand to like everybody else's groups of nerds was actually a group called Spielbany. Um, there, uh, it's just, uh, spiel the German word for game and uh, the end of the word Albany because it was in the Albany area or actually is mm -hmm. in the Albany area. Um, and they would meet quarterly for big events where everybody, where a bunch of game designers would show up and play test each other's games and, and talk about them and try to come up with ways of improving them. And they're not really one group of nerds. They're about five different, fundamentally different groups of nerds that have completely different styles as to what they enjoy and what they like doing. 
And so very quickly, I discovered that a lot of things that I thought were just fine did not work. Uh, you put them in front of other people and it just falls apart. And so things like, and this is, this is what started the process for getting rid of the, um, uh, the combat system. But it also, uh, one of the fellows there, uh, Jeff, was uh, a very adamant that even if the game was not amazing the first time you play it, by the time you're done, you better know how to play it. And it should ideally be taught during the first playthrough, just because it's a, a rather complex game. Mm-hmm. So he was pushing a lot to change the uh, phase order such that we could we could build a phase order that uh, was you could learn over the course of the first turn. And like this is actually a property that uh, ASIF sh- shares. Um, advanced civilization, you you can start off just saying this is population and this is how it doubles, and you don't need to know anything else. It's a very simple rule, and that's enough to get you through the first three turns. Um, and so you can just teach the rules incrementally, turn by turn, and and by the time you need them, you understand them. And sidereal, you can't quite play a good game like that, but you can def by by the end of turn two. Pretty universally, people know how to play it and understand exactly what they're doing. I've always been of the mind that constraints often breed creativity. So it seems like for you, so how long did this take to play back when it was? Uh, oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> so you like, like I say, I like if you want. No, 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 no. It's like I say, I like those eight-hour games, and uh, yeah. So um, the original version was around eight, six to eight hours, and it did vary by player count, actually. Um, more players made the game run a bit longer. Uh, right. It was still simultaneous. Um, I hate uh, latency with the burning passion of a thousand suns, so everything is runs uh, is a fully simultaneous game, so you're never waiting for somebody else, particularly. But... Um, it uh, yeah, it was incredibly long, and that's obviously a problem. You can't you can't put an eight hour game on the market and say, hey, do you want to spend an eight hour lunch break playing my game? That's that's not a thing people can do. So yeah. uh, the first task for me was to figure out how to uh, trim this thing down, and I started by cutting out rules. This is actually a common theme in in my game design is that I uh, tend to build things increasingly complex, and then I sit down and say, okay, I need to uh, pare this back. And I build a new game that simulates the previous game in a much simpler fashion. So, mm. right. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, okay, what can I get rid of? I, I, this has, I need to make giant cuts. So I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm going to get rid of the entirety of the board. I still need a little bit of position to handle fleet movement and colonization. So I'll use the seven, eight, seven wonders trick of using uh, seating positions as if they were locations. How many spaces sure. to your right or left? Um, and fleets can like rotate around the board. Um, and that successfully cut the game all the way down to four hours, which is still not okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, and then it was just a long series of me knocking things off and refining things and simplifying things. Um, it's like one of the things I, I would do is actually uh, trim down what it takes to think about something. So, um, okay. So uh, a, 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 uh, when I was in development with with Spielbeny, one of the uh, I, I, with people who had not played it yet, and uh, noting how much effort I was putting into the balance, running spreadsheets and and running stupendous numbers of playtests, th- there were people who would say, "Hey, be careful! You may overbalance your game." And they're thinking in terms of games where the decisions are so well balanced against each other that it literally doesn't matter what you do; you you have right. moved one step forward and. Most people or people who play a lot of games have seen these. It's hard to remember their names because they're not memorable. 
Um, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, there. Uh, yeah. So. Um, and uh, and it's a, but in this case the game's this chaotic mess. So it's that level of balance is necessary just to bring it down to normal. Um, but uh, I can do that. I can actually use too much balance to eliminate a decision, um, and I actually do that with research. So in the original version, um, technology was a uh, all the technology research, te- research you could do was available. Um, so for people who do not know Sidereal, when you invent a technology, you get a benefit, you share it with everybody else, and you get a giant pile of victory points. And yeah. mostly you invent tech for the victory points. And as a byproduct, you get a nice economic bonus that everyone else gets. Um, and it, that's always been the case. Uh, it, it was kind of a, me undoing how technology works in most games. Um, and so... The problem is that people, when they look at the technologies, um, new players would stare at them for about half an hour, figuring out what each and every single technology did. And this was really bad when they weren't all converters and some of them would like introduce cloaking devices, letting you hide your fleets or introduce new combat ship or new movement rules or something. Right. Um, And yeah, so... um, and so they spent half an hour before the game started just staring at this tableau, trying to figure out what it is and how to optimize it. And it doesn't matter. Like, as an experienced player, the answer isn't, I want to invent this specifically because it changes the game in this way, usually. It's mostly, I can afford to invent this, and I will score if I do so. Therefore, I will invent the thing I can afford. Um, So we made two changes. Uh, The first was that I... Uh, set it up such, or we we actually introduced the bidding track. This is this is again from Spielbinding. We introduced the bidding track for bidding for the the research teams, um, so right. that's just to reduce the number of cards you were looking at. Um, and we also uh, I, I went out of my way to make sure the balance was as perfect as possible for inventing, um, and and that it so that the decision balance was pretty much just can i afford this not what does it do so you wouldn't have to sit there staring at them trying to figure that out you could just glance at it and say that one costs blue cubes and i'm overproducing them and i can't find anyone who wants to buy them so i'm going to grab that team and and score off of them instead um, when i'm relieved you did that Tausetti, because <laughs> I, re- I remember when i opened the box and you know there's this moment of bewilderment where oh, I, I, yeah. I I was super excited for this game because I love negotiation and and I and all of these cards spill out with all these colors and arrows and and arrows of different colors and <laughs> yeah. sub icons and and I'm going oh my goodness how am I going to learn this and then what you did was I feel like uh, elegant on two levels where the first is is exactly what you're saying is that by by saying okay well this turn these are the only five cards, you know, whatever the number is that can even be researched. Now I'm looking at five cards yeah. um, instead of, you know, how many are there in it? How many tech cards are there per faction? Uh, uh, there are 21. Um, 21. Well, I'm not looking at, right. So now I'm not looking at 21 cards. I'm looking at a sort of graded scale of, okay, here's these five cards. This is all I need to worry about. And exactly like you said, it really is based on what resources I think I have or can barter for. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so much easier, but you also do this thing where it makes the bandwidth incredibly manageable um, just compared to that glut of information. One of the things that I love about the technology cards, and I think this is one of my favorite upgrade systems is that you can pay a technology to upgrade a card 
um, to flip it over to make oh. it better. And it creates Gosh. a system where no longer is my tableau, you know, 15 cards. Now I'm using cards that I don't need to make cards I do like better than they were. And they're gone forever. And often there are some tricky trade-offs there. Can you tell us a little bit about, so where did this awesome upgrade system there, come from? There is so much history behind that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we, I, I tried everything before I finally tripped over that one. Uh, okay, so in the Dawn Ages, um, that system did not exist. Uh, you you would invent a technology and would either change the rules or give you a converter, and that was it. And uh, there was... The only thing we had was when you got a colony, um, you had a set of... I'm going to call them cards. They were actually tokens. But you could up, you could replace the colony, upgrading into what I called a city world um, for a cost. And it, in some versions, would be worth a victory point at the end of the... Excuse me, at the end of the game. Um, and, um, and that shifted the economy back towards whatever it was that you tended to produce and consume so, and was always worthwhile to, to do. Um, and that was like the first version of upgrading we ever had. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, what ended up happening, uh, the, when I started cutting all of the weird cards, one of the problems Spielbunny had was just like, there was too many weird things to pay attention to. Um, mm-hmm. and, and weird rules is like, what is this going to do to the game? And so, uh, and so well, and those are pretty much absent now entirely. Yeah, right, right. It's just, it's just, everything it's just a converter. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. It's, it, yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah. It's been, it's completely distilled down to just converters and that, that happened because that complexity was confusing and it was slowing everything down. And I was trying to distill down the game into its its heart, its its fundamental nature, and and so we were we were cutting them all away eventually, and in order to make the game more understandable and more playable. Um, and during the, that process, it was becoming a lot more simple. And uh, this this is actually another adv- idea that Jacob Davidport came up with. Um, he actually came up with it at the same time as he said, "You have to reduce this to seven resources," which was the last thing I wanted to hear, by the way, because it meant that. I had to throw away all of my balance math and this giant spreadsheet and start entirely from scratch to figure this thing out. Um, turned out to be essential to getting the game the way it is now. It actually is what led to the uh, uh, the uh, faction resource consumption rates, which is another giant conversation. Um, but during that, he was mentioning, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you had a technology that if you invented it, it would flip over a bunch of other techs so that it like you say, it reduces the amount of table space this game is taking up because it's horrible. <laughs> Nobody has tables for this monster because yeah. it was like twice as big as it is today. So, oh my goodness. And it's, right. It still requires a pretty durable yeah. table. Yeah, it's um, it's about as big as a as a 4X game like Eclipse or, or Twilight Imperium, um, right. except that there's no central board. It looks a lot more busy. Um, and that's today. Originally, this was unplayable if you didn't have two tables that you could push together. So, um, <laughs> right. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you heard it now. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, not, not actually. Okay. Like we, I was experimenting with like half sized cards and I couldn't fit the converters into them. I tried a million different things to try to squeeze things down. Actually, that's one of the reasons the converters, when, when you see multiples of a cube, it has a number on it. The original version didn't. It just printed every single cube. And there's uh-huh. just not enough room to do that. Tausen, um, could so- you? Is there any chance I could, I could bribe you into sending me a picture? Um, snapping a picture and sending it to me of the whole thing set up. Oh, geez. Um, 
that may be a little bit challenging, but not strictly impossible. This is the original version of, or well, okay. So um, are we talking the original version with the board or are we talking like one of the early prototypes? I do have those lying around somewhere, I think. Some of them I just have to reprint. Anything you can give me, because I'll put it up with the uh, podcast just to give a sense of how much work you did on streamlining this down (laughs) into the current box. Uh, I'll have to, I'll, I will try. Um, My actual challenge is finding a a good camera. Um, My phone, uh, my old phone with the camera in it has shattered. So um, I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. You don't need to go out of your way. I was just curious. But yeah. Um, But yeah, I'll I'll see what I can do. Um, But yeah. So, uh, Anyway, so uh, uh, Dave, uh, sorry, Jacob it, uh, introduced the idea of invent a tech, it flips over other technologies. And so I just, every tech had four, or, or every era had, um, I think, like two or three, or actually, I don't think I had eras at the time. Um, but yeah, I, like, I, I believe I think f- uh, four technologies that when you invented them, instead of introducing a new card, it would flip over about a quarter of your cards. And every card specified which of these things would upgrade it. Um and I looked at that and I said, this has a lot more potential. Um, first things first, it has the problem that I'm still introducing a new card to the table that, or a new ability to the table anyway. It's it's only removing four cards from this. Um, so it's not really shrinking the tableau. Uh, and the second one was that this has a lot more potential to represent things beyond just technological upgrade. Um, like that thing I was mentioning with uh, colonies, where if you you could upgrade a colony into a city world, I was like, I, I wanted to keep that. And I still had these really complicated ways of doing it in various iterations. I said, well, what if I, if your starting cards could be flipped over at the cost of a colony? That's that's exactly the same thing. And I could even just hand you the victory point immediately instead of scoring them at the end of the game. And mm-hmm. it just becomes a slight variant of a single rule. I've just eliminated an entire phase of my game by making a variant of a, of a much simpler rule. That's great. Um, right. One, yeah, it, it used to be an upgrade it, phase. So. Is, that, is, that, is that what opens up the design? I love that you can yeah. trade victory points. Or well, you can you can or you can trade them as donation goods, but you can't. Yeah, yeah. The, the main victory points are not are. Um, or the core ones, they're the ones you earn. Right. Well, that's that's what I mean. Is is that you have this possibility where you might earn a victory point that just goes out into your donation pile. Yeah. Um, oh. And and that immediately attracts all eyes to what you're selling, which basically is just a priority or, order. Is now everybody is looking at you and trying to give you the good deal because you're the one passing out points. Um, frequently, it actually, that, that dynamic depends a bit, on, a bit on the gaming group. My group tends to undervalue points until the very late game. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they tend to ignore them and it's a little bit more challenging to sell it. Um, donation victory points are by far the most interesting element of the donation system because they're the one thing you can't, uh, buy back from somebody else. Once you've given it away, it's permanent. Sure. Um, but yeah, so that actually started in this, uh, I, in the original version way back when we had things like donation goods where you had to give away resources and it actually gave away during the economy phase immediately, although you couldn't feed it into anything else. Um, uh, and, uh, and then some, some of them were victory points and I designed those converters actually like ubiquitous culture or, um, uh, what it was called, uh, uh, Xenocultural exchange, for example, um, thematically is you know what it sounds like. It's it's hey look we've got culture you've got culture let's trade, um, and uh, it's set up in such a way it was it was set up in such a way that the um, uh, if you 
if you would basically want to just pair up with somebody else running the same converter and exchange each other's second half of the converter. And if you did that, it actually, in that early version, it gave you back the resources you needed to run it again. So you could just keep uh, uh, cycling it as long as you could pair up with other players. Um, that's a bit too simple, so it became more involved. I, I'm just so excited about how much detail has gone into every little thing. Oh, gosh. Um, so, so for instance, one of the things I love about the game is that you've got on the cards that little calculator. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. That tells you the value of things. That it, So what is it? So it's three minor resources and three ships worth... You know, it's three minor it's, resources it's, it's, yeah. are worth three ships, are worth two major resources, are worth one Ultratech. Is that roughly the conversion rate? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the conversion rate. And that conversion rate actually is is all the way from the Dawn Ages. Although, again, it was... There were, there were a lot more colors. There were two different versions of what is now Ultratech, for example. And the ships didn't exist as a bidding currency. They were a combat system, and their exchange rates were completely different. But, um, yeah. Um, so, like, a lot of that exchange rate was created because of that that three-to-two exchange, where you can't trade a small cube for a large one fairly. And so you have to figure out how to overcome that, and you, you can't quite make a fair deal. So um, there's a bit more thought has to go into it. Um uh, basically, my job is to make your life difficult, <laughs> fundamentally. <laughs> well, um, one of the places where that really manifests for me, uh, yeah, um, but... and that new players never quite grasp, is is just how intricate the deals can become. Oh, um, yeah. So I've so I've taught this game to maybe five or six different groups, including um, some groups of strangers at conventions, where it was just me and a couple friends, plus you know six totally unsuspecting uh, prey, <laughs> and we had these wonderful moments where at first, you know, we explained, okay, you can even trade your cards only temporarily. It's a loan, <laughs> but you can trade your cards and they go, Oh, okay. And then they, they just drop that. Right. They, right. Right. That right. Falls out of their brain. They, they don't quite grasp it. And then once the game really starts me and the two people who I've brought to the convention with me, who understand the game, we're starting to make deals where we say, okay, you're going to give me that card for a turn and you're going to give it the next turn. And you're going to give me these resources to run half mm -hmm. of it. And next turn, then I'll give you two ultra tech that results from this other thing that then you'll research. And they're going, you know, their, their eyes are like, uh, are like the ball and paw <laughs> back and forth. You know, and, and they're silent at the exact moment they should be shouting. And it's, <laughs> well, it's just, right, it's, it's a wonderful yeah. negotiation. Oh, but, but what works about it is that the bandwidth requirements of the game are such that by around the third round, no, they're, they're getting it. Yeah. So, like, um, one of the one of so one of the issues I've got, of course, is that um, you may end up learning this game from just the box, and I need to get players up to that level. Uh, and I, yeah. I actually do two things to do that. One of them is I there's a there's a cheat, there's an advice section on on every player board that gives you enough advice to go from an utter beginner up to mid level. It doesn't it doesn't yeah. never gets into any of the advanced strategies, it's just, but it gets you up to mid level and avoids the biggest pitfalls for playing that faction. So it um, gives and, you some suggestions without robbing the game of its sense of discovery. Yeah. Also, like all of the all of the species are designed to support multiple play styles and multiple strategies. Because if there's only one correct way to play a species, that's that's boring. You've just eliminated a lot of replayability. So yeah. there there's a lot of flexibility. They can they can pivot a lot more than you would expect from those those um, summaries. But uh, the other element of it is my hope, and I'm not sure if this actually works, but that uh, if people play it by themselves without ever having learned it from somebody else, that they'll just play different species over time. So the moment, if even if you've got a group of people who never trade cards, 
the moment somebody's playing the NES, they have to trade cards. You can't not trade your cards. Literally, yeah. you can't run them. So you have to think in terms of how can I sell a card and how, how can I sell a converter? Um, and then if you're paying a lot of attention, you'll notice there's a converter there that eats an octagon, gives you a victory point, and produces three donation white. And the Ennead are starved for white. They want that white in the game, but they would also really like to have it. And there's this thing you can do where you hand that card to somebody else and say, if you run this using your octagon, you get a victory point and you'll produce three donation white, knowing and maybe you even trade at that time and say, and you'll give it to me next turn and I'll give you something to make it worth your while. Or right. you, or just even the fact that they've done it means that the next turn you immediately turn around and say, hey, I see you've got three donation white. I can buy that off of you. I need it. You don't. So, <laughs> right. Um, and then if you go back and play a different species and you've done that a bunch, maybe you'll think, huh, maybe I can trade cards. Like an obvious one that shows up for me is I've just finished a turn where I've invented a major technology. I've paid out of the nose to be able to do it. And I have no economy. I've got no resources. I've got a bunch of converters sitting there. It's just sitting fallow. And for a brand new player who's never played before, that is a lockup state. It's actually some one of the things that I do is that the the species with low di uh, low difficulty species are all designed are ones that don't hit that lockup state. They always bounce back very easily. The high difficulty species tend to freeze up very easily if you're not careful. But as an experienced player, the immediate response is, okay, well, I don't have any resources, but I have all these converters and they're incredibly valuable and I can't use them. So figure out who can use them, sell them to the other person, get some of the value, even if it's just next turn. And it's effectively like I ran half of my economy without actually using any resources to do so because I didn't have any. Um, right. And you just bounce right back. Well, it lends itself very well to those deals. Usually in board games, even, even fairly heavy negotiation board games, I feel like you often... Even even deals that look like they're three or four way are really just a sequence of fairly simple two way deals. Um, where one of the things I love about sidereal confluence is I feel like you can genuinely generate deals that have three or four or five parties. Um, not not the first time, not the first time you play. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. First time players <laughs> but, won't do that. But once but once you understand what you're doing, you can generate multi way deals fairly easily. And regularly. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, as, as, as a minor aside, uh, um, two of my more terrifying players uh, really like playing it with this three-player, which is not on the side of the box. Um, and I played a game with them, and every turn consisted of a single three-way deal that took half an mm -hmm. hour to discuss. So right. <laughs> that was a terrifying game. Um, but yeah, so... Um, Part of this, uh, like, okay, a lot of this is just because you have binding deals um, and the rules just explicitly say you can make three-way deals, but you could have done that just because I said you have binding deals. There's ways of constructing it. Me saying it in the rules just makes it a streamlined thing to think about. Um, but uh, part of it is also, uh, there was a known problem in like ACIV. So uh, if I've got six uh, or, or seven of the eight uh, grain cards, I have an immense amount of value, but that last grain card is humongously valuable. And whoever's holding on to it is about to get paid a stupid amount of wealth because they know how valuable it is to me. So, I, and I never want to be in that situation. In that game, you you were frequently hiding uh, what, what you have. You claim you have less grain so that they think it's less valuable so you can buy it for cheaper. Um, and in Sidereal, I have everything open so that you can make honest, fair deals and you can see what the consequences are. Um, so you can't get away with that. Um, and 
So one of the problems, so how do you solve that in sidereal? And the answer is, well, let's say you're, you're three away from the th- big, the big thing and you've got three players you want to trade with and all of them want to be the last player. Well, you go to them and, and, and you don't want to buy two out of the three. That would be a disaster. So you just make a three-way binding deal and say, Hey, um, I'm interested or a four-way actually. Um, I'm interested in buying one from you and one from you and one from you. I'm only willing to do it if all three of these deals go through. Let's talk. And suddenly the I, the last player dynamic just vanishes, which also um, conveniently better balances the game. It means that um, the the value that you're getting out of finishing something, you are still paying it off, but you're paying it evenly to all the players. It isn't about somebody waiting for the last minute and, and avoiding trading in order to take advantage of a situation. Have you ever played a game called Millennium Blades? I have. Um, only once. It is... Uh, uh, and I've actually played it while this was in development. Um, although by then I was, I was well past the point where it wasn't really influencing anything. Um, yeah, yeah. because what these games have in common that I, that I love is the way that you used, uh, that you and Brad Talton have both used a timed segment to keep everyone on the same page during the negotiation phase. Um, now his is, his is quite different. I, I don't, I don't oh, oh gosh. Yeah, no, I'm I actually, I, I find it very difficult to play millennium blades just because the, the currency that he's using is very intricate because it's, it's yes. cards that have unique rules on them. Um, right. and I, and I, I literally can't read them fast enough. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and I'm especially cruel because both in your game and millennium blades, I actually, uh, whatever your recommended timed segment, uh, duration mm-hmm. is, I I actually shave off a couple of minutes. <laughs> you totally can, honestly. Like that, ten minutes was is is honestly just a nice round number. Um, the original version was fifteen. Um, and oh, okay. right. Uh, back what Spielbeni said. Okay, no, I'm t- sick of this. We need a timer. Um, right. So okay, like the game. Technically, if you look at the rule book, the the time segment is optional rules. In all honesty, um whether to make that uh, the optional rules or whether to make the non-time version the optional rules the only reason i picked this way is because that way i don't have to ship a, a timer in the game um, oh okay <laughs> <laughs> right like they're both equally valid um and you can yeah. you can change the timer as much as you want you can even like say okay well it, as if people are really active at the end of 10 minutes we'll give them an extra minute or something if you want to go, go in the opposite direction but like my experience is if you do the timer Players are usually done in eight to nine minutes. And if you don't use a timer, it takes about 12 to 13. Um, but it depends on the group. Uh, so like there's groups that need that timer uh, to be able to finish. Because um, otherwise what ends up happening is you end up with two people who spend half an hour negotiating a needlessly complicated deal that's worth maybe half a victory point at the end of the game. Um, and there's other groups that look at that and go, it's not worth my time. I'm, I'm done. I, I have everything I want. I'm finished. And the end, as a result, the the trade phase just collapses down and finishes by itself without needing the timer. So right, that's interesting to me that it was that it's a pragmatic material decision. Um, I mean, I you know I I totally understand the people who get frustrated when a when a game that requires you to use a pad doesn't come with a golf pencil or yeah. or they're frustrated that there's not a timer if it's necessary so, because to me i never use the timers that come with games the, i the use my to, phone because i don't even see the timers yeah, i mean fair fair so like honestly you, you have to understand it's not like the pragmatic pragmatic material decision was the big leading reason it's that everything else was so thoroughly balanced in my mind that that it came down to i don't care i could flip a coin but one of these doesn't involve putting a timer in the game so i guess i'll pick that one 
Uh, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's great. Right. So yeah, it's it's uh, that level of of eh. it's like um uh, one of like uh, this this is I'm going to segue for you if you don't mind. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, Go ahead. All right. So um, one of the elements of this game is it's got a thematics substructure and it's also got a rule structure. Um, it's in the balance math and so on. I mean, this, this, so it's always the get the thematics versus gameplay thing. And the way the game's built is it's, it, there's a lot of thematics. There's actually arguably too much. Um, most people will never notice any of it. Whoops. Um, but the, uh, uh, I, I always designed everything from the rules first, the balance first. And mm-hmm. when it did not matter, when the balance did not care what I did, I'd go back to the thematics and say, okay, what's thematic for this? So the value of each converter, the fact that there's one converter of each color in each tech era, um, the the costs of all those research teams, the fact that there's always two costs and that two technologies in each era use each resource. And it's all evenly distributed in, in a nice little circle. I do all, all three possible circles around the seven uh, cycle. Um, all of that is constraint. Um, exactly which resources I use to invent which technology exactly what resources come out of a technology, that's all thematic because the math doesn't care. Um, and so I, I, that's all places where I get to make choices. So like a ubiquitous, inter- uh, ubiquitous cultural repository is basically just the internet. Um, right. Needlessly complicated name, but there you go. And so it, it eats energy and it produces uh, victory points, which is basically the big culture thing. And for most species, it actually produces white cubes, which represent culture. Um, with the occasional exception of a species that would not use the internet to talk to each other, but would instead use it for like telerobots or something, in which case they produce yeah. brown cubes or green cubes. Um, and yeah, so that's that's where all the stuff comes from. But yeah. You know, one of the things where, so it seems to me, you know, I've, I've read some of your, uh, I wouldn't call them diaries, but you responded on Board Game Geek to somebody asking for some of the thematic reasoning behind the setting. Oh, and you responded that, you basically wrote a miniature essay for every single of the nine factions talking about um, their history, their evolutionary process, where they came from, who designed them or how did they develop on their own. And, um, and that that's recommended reading for anyone who has looked at these nine cards and gone, man, there's a lot of stuff here, but I'm only seeing some, some thematic uh, guidelines. Yeah. But, but what I love about it is that I feel like those guidelines are incredibly useful. Um, like think about the Kalian that here's a, you know, they're, they're quote unquote trees. Um, sort of. Yeah. Which, which makes it hard for them to travel. They can't be uprooted, but they do want to seed planets, but they kind of suck because they're, they're quote unquote trees at actually doing the travel themselves, which automatically creates a very natural and very in world appropriate uh, negotiation that these are these are a species that are going to want to negotiate for for planets to seed and for ships to get there how did you so what came first did the game came come first or did this setting come first for you awkwardly the answer is yes um so <laughs> right so in the absolute first version of the game um these species were relatively shallowly designed things that you would see out of a early 4x game i had the the ancient race and the military race and the the 
the tree people actually the Kalian actually came out because I had originally built it for up to eight players. Um, and what ended up happening was uh, I had accidentally designed the board setup rules to cover out to nine players because I forgot the nomads never start with a, a, a homeworld and I built the eight pl- eight homeworld map. And I was like, I, w- I would hate to waste all the work I did figuring out this map. So let's come up with a ninth species. And that's where the Kalian actually came from. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but over time, they started getting more and more personality and reasons for themselves. Like early on, the Yangi were just secretive and that was it, that they're, I had nothing more to them. Um, and eventually it was like, okay, but why? Why are they, uh, const- what's their actual philosophy behind that that would cause them to be like this? And then when I got deep into developing this game, um, after when I said, okay, let's publish it, um, I hit this couple months where I was just sick and tired of seeing this game. And I said, I need to do something else. And I decided to build a role-playing game, um, which is still in development. And I built it and I said, well, if I'm going to build a role-playing game, I need thematics to explain like what the background art and the names of the technologies are going to be. So let's build a role-playing game in the exact same setting so we can explore it properly. And I went way too far. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> actually, I actually feel a little bit bad about it because it meant that when I went to the publishers, I had to say, look, I'm really sorry. This is irrational, but you can't reskin this one. Um, at least not for the first version. <laughs> If, if you make yeah. a second version, I'll be happy to let you reskin it. But the first version, you have to keep to my setting. Very sorry. Yeah. Because uh, I, yeah. You shouldn't really fall in love with your ideas, but oops. Um, One so of the yeah. peccadillos of the game that I love is that you have pronunciation guides right there. On oh, God, the, yeah. Uh, species boards. Um, and, and I am the kind of person who, I, first of all, I love pronunciation guides because I work in history. But second, oof. anytime it isn't history... I, I, I look at those and go, you're not my mom, Tau Seti, and I'm going to pronounce these <laughs> however I can read them. You know what? I completely agree with your philosophy. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, they're made up words. You go ahead and pronounce them however you feel like. Uh, if you want to call the... I've, I've seen people call the Chaz uh, K-Jazz. I sit there and pronounce it as Chaz Javakalim, doing the whole thing out, because I invented it, and therefore it's my responsibility to say the whole thing. But, you know, <laughs> everybody else can do whatever they want. I've seen people call the Kitsa Get Riddle the, the Easy Bees, and you know what? If you say Easy Bees, every no, everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. So. Yeah, immediately I was going, I hate them. Uh, they're the ones I give to whoever I think is uh, shyest at the table. Um. Yeah, they're, they're I mean, they're very very focused is what they are it's actually why they end up difficulty one um they have more rules than you would expect for an easy species normally the easy species has nothing and yeah. they have the moat they have four distinct uh, special rules and a lot of different subtle things you can do with them but um but it turned out that a the special rules boil down to you're good at a lot of things so you don't really need to think about it and b um they they're hyper focused they need five green a turn and you can, you can just tell a play, new player, you need five green a turn. Do whatever it takes to get that. And they now have a path to go, go forward. And as long as they keep doing that, the species will support them. So, Well, that's one of the things I enjoy about the negotiations is that you you certainly have these templates. Like uh, the easy bees, the kits are crit. I'm kit, not, see, kits are kit riddle. Everyone calls kit, them kit. Crit, that's the, the short version. Kit. Okay, the kit. Um <laughs> That they, yeah. you know, you can give them an easy guideline like that, but that's what leads into this, uh, this nebulous fungibility of all oh, yeah. of the resources is because the in- the game really blossoms 
the instant that everybody else knows, okay, the easy bees need five green, which means you get to bend them over a barrel to get it. Sort of. You see, there's a hidden secondary strategy for the easy bees. You, you can ignore the green. Like, this is how you win with the Kitsukit Riddle if you start the game and you look at the board and you realize there is four green on the board. There are some species combinations, especially in the three-player game, uh, where that can actually happen. And what you do is you pivot completely and you say, well, I've got these worlds I can just play for yellow. So how about I ignore the green? In fact, I sell my green at a usurous rate and I buy all the yellow on the board. And suddenly I'll just spend all of that and play a giant pile of worlds. And okay, I didn't get to play my really cool converter that gave me lots of stuff. So that'll mm-hmm. trip me up in that way. But now I have this economy that's actually pretty decent and will last for the rest of the game. So there is a, there's a degree to which each species can literally ignore their dominant strategy and do something completely different. And it, it'll work as long as you can figure out how to do that. Now, let me ask you a question that you warned me uh, you had the perfect answer for before we began. <laughs> what is your personal favorite? Oh, and then I'm going to ask... But keep in mind, I'm going to ask you a more complicated question that I think you might have a better answer for after you uh, don't answer this one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) the don't answer. So the problem I have is always that if I had a personal favorite, that means means there's another one I don't like, and I will work to improve that one until eventually I like them all equally. So really, honestly, they're all equally, uh, I I love them all equally, and and that's that. Um, most, almost everybody else I know has one or two species that they prefer, um, which is honestly how it was always designed, but yeah. So what is this other question? So so they're like children. You're not going, maybe (laughs) deep in your heart, you know, their strengths and flaws, but they're all equal to you. Yeah, that is a pretty much exactly. I mean, it, I mean, this, this game was my baby for more or less, uh, four years or something and in very, very intense development. So to some extent, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm honestly too close to it. This is this is why game designers don't get to review their own games, because I, I it's impossible for me to tell if it's good or not. So, so um. my personal favorite, I have played as all of them except for the Nomads. Mm-hmm. I have not played the Nomads in part because whenever I look at the uh, sheet, I go, I don't know what's going on. And then I pass it to my friend Jeff. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and and he knows how to play as them. And I've, I've just never, I'm usually teaching. So I do not have time to be shepherding a table uh, mm-hmm. through the first time as this game while also figuring out a faction. But my favorites, I have two favorites, Tausetti. Mm-hmm. My two favorites are the two that basically break the game a little bit. Uh, not break it, but but break away from the regular rules. I like the Yengi, Yengi Eye, it sounds Yengi-ai. like. Yep. Um, I love licensing that. Oh, sorry, love... what was the other one? So that's just the first one. I love licensing tech instead of sharing. Oh, yeah. I yeah. love doing it. And just that, being um... the biggest dick. <laughs> that's a way to play it, sure. Um... <laughs> and, and, the, and, and, and with that justification, I think you can probably guess the other faction I like to be. Uh, which the is Zeth? The Zeth. I love stealing <laughs> from people. And not uh, even yeah. having an economy and just being a hut. <laughs> yeah they're they're um I, I i enjoy introducing them to new players because uh, uh when, after after a first game it's like okay let's show off all the species that you haven't played yet and it's like okay look at these guys they've got this economy and these guys have this very weak economy and then i get to the zap and i'm like here's their economy and i place a single card on the board and people stare at it and go what <laughs> it's like yes they don't actually get one of those <laughs> yeah <laughs> But, now, but look at all this other stuff. 
Is uh, it the Zeth that you've said should not be used in a game with new players? So the very strong advice is that the if you have any other new players that um or sorry, if anybody else in the game is new, that then you should oh, not right. play the Zeth. Um, okay. it, it actually works great if a brand new player plays the Zeth and everybody pl- else is experienced. Um, okay. And the reason for it is the Zeth is a psychological faction a lot. Like, okay, so one of the things about balancing this monster is that for most games, you can balance stuff as if you were dealing with like perfect rationalists who made optimal decisions everywhere. You can't do that here. It's too much. It's too fast. And it's too much about how people communicate and how people think. Um, and so things like the Zeth and, and also, honestly, the Yangi are balanced somewhat, not just on the math, but on how they're perceived by the other players. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the issues with brand new players is that when they see the Zeth, they look absolutely terrifying and they do one of two things. They either pay way too much money to protect themselves or they freeze up and say, I'm not willing to pay you anything, steal from me. And both of those are disastrous choices. One of the things I always love in negotiation games is I, you know, I, I, I find it fascinating when you talk about mathematical balance. I'm also interested a lot of the time in social balance, mm-hmm. um, where players realize that somebody is maybe breaking ahead. And so, of course, they, they reduce their incentives towards that player. You know, they won't get as good of deals, that sort of thing, which, of course, you, you are minimizing with the player shield. But you can still notice when you're going, hey, I, I feel like so and so is really generating a ton of points. So now uh, there's actually a couple things going on here. <laughs> um, so the first one is the game's so cooperative that not refusing to trade with somebody who's getting ahead is a great way to lose. Um the game actually works best with less of a gang up on the winner and more of a um, work together to support the loser strategy. You you mm-hmm. make friendly trades with whoever's in the worst position because you can afford to do so. They're not threatening to you. And that makes them an incredibly valuable resource because there's profit to be made. Um, and you can make it without actually hurting your position. So which, which rule of acquisition is that? Uh, I don't actually know the, the Ferengi well enough to be able to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Um, I know them well enough to recognize that, but. Uh, well, so what was the other factor in terms of mathematical and social balancing that? Ah, right. Okay. So um, the other element is strategies of the commons. Um, so, okay. Human beings have a, uh, a lot of, uh, the, when building a game for humans, as opposed to something else, uh, which admittedly there isn't much experience with the alternative. Um, human beings have a lot of strengths. We're amazingly good pattern recognizers, uh, and we have a lot of weaknesses. Um, we're bad at empathy if the other person's perspective is vastly different than our own. You can actually create um, very intimidating situations in games, taking advantage of that. Um, and we uh, fall for things that are tragedies of the commons, where you make a, a decision that is optimal in independently of everyone else's decisions. But if everyone makes the same decision, you end up in a potentially negative state from your perspective. And Mm -hmm. I use that in two places to make the game actually work. Uh, One of them is with the Zeth. Uh, A common technique with the Zeth is to to say, well, I refuse to trade with, or let's not trade with the Zeth. And if you try to do that, the answer is anybody who refuses is going to uh, get a giant uh, advantage because anyone who does actually trade with the Zeth is going to be is going to effectively have this this entire second economy to support them um so and and similar or actually i guess the the two reasons are both that which applies to the Zeth and all other species and the second one is just 
do you bribe this F? And the answer there is a, a, a broader, um, uh, if all of the players uh, refuse to bribe the Zeth, the Zeth lose. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, then you're not trading with the Zeth, and therefore uh, anybody who does bribe the Zeth is, has a basically a captive economy. Um, and the other one is much the, the more broad case of if the players work together to exclude a player, um, that is a theoretically optimal strategy. There's actually somebody up on, on Reddit relatively recently who pointed this out. And honestly, it was the thing that terrified me most when, when Jacob Davenport recommended binding deals. Um, and it doesn't actually happen in practice. And part of that is that is the tragedy of the commons. A player, if everybody else agrees to, to refuse a player or, or not trade with a player, the, the one remaining player ends up winning easily. Um, but the other part of it is just that that kind of deal making is hostile deal making. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's its tone is more aggressive, and uh, the mere fact the, that that tone shift means suddenly trust evaporates. It's like wait, you're you're asking me to do something that will trash somebody else's game. What do I not know? And the game looks like you have all the information except victory points, but there's actually one really big hidden piece of information that's vital that wrecks this this particular deal, and that is that you have no idea what anyone else is thinking. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that and that basically means that that those kinds of deals, I've actually seen them offered occasionally, and the usual response is people going, "I." I'm going to charge as much as I can for this because this looks scary and I don't really know what's going on. I need to make sure that I'm safe. And the the default safety behavior is you charge a lot. And and usually the deal doesn't go through because of that. And that that's what you would do in any non-binding game is you go, ah, you're getting a lot of, I think you're getting a lot of value out of this. I don't know. I should charge you a lot for it to make sure that I don't end up with the worst end of this deal. Um, and so, yeah, you you actually undermine your own trust by offering something like that. And so those deals don't actually in practice happen. And if you had perfect rationalists, if this was a game put in front of a bunch of AIs, not only would those deals happen, but it would become an incredibly unfun game for them. But with humans, it works. Let me ask you my weird question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I want you to create two game states for me. Okay. With four players. I want you to tell me, so instead of picking for me your favorite uh, child, tell me if I were playing this with four people. First of all, which four factions would create the most pleasurable entry point for new players? And the second one is create a game state for me where pick four of the species that would create the weirdest game state for <laughs> veterans. All right. So um, this actually follows the difficulty chain pretty well. The uh, For brand new players, I would recommend what most people actually do, is they pay, pick the easiest four species. So the Kitsukit Riddle, the Chazjavik Kaleem, the Kaleon, and the Fodderon. Um, the reason for those is all of those species are robust. Well, the, the Fodderon aren't, but the other species have robust economies. If you make the mistake of inventing too quickly or otherwise crash your economy, they naturally bounce back. Uh, the Kitsukit Riddle, because they've got a lot of colonies and they just naturally get a lot of resources. The Kaleon, because all their colonies are doubled. And the Chazjavik Kaleem, because they have a lot of colonies again. So it's, you can see the pattern. They're all have get a lot of value without any input. Um, the Fodderon don't work that way, um, and in fact have a relatively fragile and relatively small economy, especially if you're playing them well. Um, but I find that new players absolutely adore their random deck of Relic Worlds and just seeing what mm-hmm. happens. And they oh, actually yeah. play 
better with new players than with experienced ones because with experienced ones you have a better sense as to what those cards are and and or the other players are more familiar with them um but when when it's a surprise to absolutely everybody at the table not just the person drawing them um it's the the like one of the they're they're actually overvalued they're 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 they're, sorry they're more valuable than the input cost is um, because you have to adapt your strategy around them. But when everybody's mm-hmm. brand new, that that sudden change affects the entire board. And so for if it with a team of just new players they actually play moderately well. Um, but yeah, um, and yeah, that's 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 the new player set. Um, for experienced, if you want to have a weird challenging game, all right, um, the you, you need to, likely the unity, definitely the NEAT, probably the unity. Um, definitely the Yangi and your choice of the uh, 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 the other two, um, the Nomads, uh, the Imdral, and uh, the uh, Zeth, depending on exactly what kind of challenge you want to have. Um, mm-hmm. I think the Nomads actually would be slightly more rec- recommendable just because they have multi-turn deals and they get really interesting when you start dealing with Nomads and NEN at the same time, and you're you're trying to figure out how to profit ma- like when you've got the nomads in the NEAT, you start getting into situations where the two of them will sit there and try to collude to make a resource overproduced in the game so that they can keep the nomads functional and 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 float their economy um so like frequently you'll see the the octagon converters getting run for, from the NEAT, uh their uh xenotech no, not Sun Xenotech. Uh, I'd have to look up the name of it, but the one that eats three octagons and produces five. It's relatively mm-hmm. difficult to run, but if they're both in play, you can get trades where the Yenniette will say, hey, look, instead of running your octagon converter, let's collude to get this thing to run so there's more octagons in the game forever because we both need octagons and, yeah. and this will float your economy. And sometimes you can get that to actually happen. Um, it depends on the details. Um, so also, congratulations. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, Nomads have the wonderful property that they can sell their uh, colony bid. So, you know. <laughs> so, thank you for talking to me. So, I, I congratulations on getting a second printing, uh, a second edition of Sidereal Confluence. Now, what's new? What's changed? Is any is it just the art, or what's different about this new it edition? It is, uh, rules-wise, it's the same game. Um, the, the cards are identical. The resources are identical. That's um, There's not much I would need to change. Um, or well, I'd be hard pressed to find anything to change. Um, the uh, the rules books, however, is has been massively rewritten. Um, <laughs> they got a, a group of of developers and editors to sit down and properly structure the thing. Um, even the teaching guides baked into it. Um, that I guess that that is the case for most current editions. They're not the case for my copies because it wasn't the case for the absolute first print run. <laughs> um, and the teaching guides also got has has had a pass go over it. Um, they've got brand new resources instead of wooden cubes. They've got these plastic pieces. Um, I don't know how far in development that is right now. Um, but they've got a picture of them up on BGG for at least the ones that were available at the, that they knew what they were doing with, um, at that time. And like the, uh, the unity wild ones are slightly marbled silver, which I absolutely adore. Um, hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's mostly an aesthetic change. Um, the I I honestly consider both versions perfectly valid. Um, in fact, the new one uh, it's it's 
it's missing some of the the line art that is in the original one, which for the thematic elements. To some extent, I look at the original one and say that's the game that was built for me. Um, but a lot of people are looking at the game and saying this thing's hideous. Uh, I I don't want I can't introduce it to new people because it's too ugly. And so th- this new version is more the game uh, built for everybody else. So um, yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, it's very pretty. Um, I, I yeah. adore the cover art. <laughs> it gets the yeah, feeling. Oh correct. man, that cover oh. art is fantastic. I love oh, yeah. that cover art. That's like the thing I'm always terrified of. Somebody is going, "Oh, it's sci-fi, and therefore genetics, generic sci-fi violence." And I'm like, "No, no." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is this glorious upward motion, and like the worst you get is politics and 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 negotiation, and that's it. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tau Seti. Is there anything else you would like to tell uh, our listeners uh, just before we go? I don't actually have a whole lot. Most people have strong online presences. I just hang around PGG. Um, so um, I've got other games in development, but I don't really want to talk about those because who knows what's going to happen with them. Yeah. Uh, so not not really. <laughs> Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, It was great talking to you. And uh, as always, thanks for listening.